This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Multilateral International Development, Multilateral Institutions, and International Economic Energy and Environmental Policy will come to order. Today, the subcommittee will hold a hearing to examine an important question. What challenges and opportunities exist for advancing U.S. interests in the United Nations system? Now, to fully assess this matter, we will hear testimony from two panels of well-qualified individuals, one comprised of executive branch officials and the other comprised of individuals from the private sector. With their help, I anticipate a thought-provoking examination of whether or not United States foreign policy objectives are being fulfilled within the UN framework, and I look forward to hearing their testimony shortly. I will add that we expect votes in the Senate to be called uh, in just moments, and so what I will be doing uh, as chairman of this committee is reading my opening uh, remarks here. Uh, I'll ask the ranking member to do the same, and then each of our witnesses, I'll have you uh, read uh, briefly your opening remarks. At that point, we're likely to uh, recess, go vote, and uh, return in, into session. So as we look at the news today, and we see the range of conflicts around the world, one thing is clear. Those conflicts are increasingly complex and have impacts that extend beyond their region. Iran continues to extend its tentacles throughout the Middle East, sowing instability and conflict wherever it goes. Russia no longer even attempts to hide its aspirations to influence foreign elections around the globe, including here in the United States. China's unfair trading policies and practices affects every one of its trading partners. The common thread with each of these challenges is they will be more easily resolved if we work together with international partners and allies. Our role in multilateral organizations is one that continues to be debated among government officials, think tanks, and academics. And while this debate is very important, we cannot lose sight of the ch changing landscape at the United Nations and other multilateral organizations. Where the United States and our allies are at risk of ceding moral and policy ground to those who do not share our conviction for standards and norms. Today, Chinese nationals are at the helm of four UN agencies. Americans are only at the head of three. One of the key issues we hope to explore in today's hearing is the implications for senior Communist Party members leading the United Nations in these agencies. The Food and Agriculture Organization, the International Telecommunications Union, the International Civil Aviation Administration, and the Industrial Development Organization. What types of policies will these Communist Party members implement? Who will they bring in to join the ranks of the UN staff? Will they represent the interests of the United Nations and its members or those of the Communist Party of China? And how should we advance our interests, which we believe to be universal, given this backdrop? President Trump has repeatedly said that other countries need to step up and do more to shoulder the weight of addressing the major crises around the world. As China's economy continues to grow and it exerts greater influence in the world, it's natural that it would seek more positions of power within the UN system. But as it does, so as it does so, it's incumbent upon the United States and our allies to ensure China supports and defends universal values rather than its own domestic political agenda. 
human rights, free speech, freedom of, of movement, freedom of religion, due process, and access to information are just a few of the values that are essential elements of the UN Charter and its goal to maintain international peace and security. We need look no further than Xinjiang or Hong Kong to have serious concerns about China's lack of respect for fundamental human rights. We should be very concerned about how the United Nations gives a platform to countries like Cuba, Venezuela, and China to talk about human rights. The UN itself publishes reports citing these and other members of the Human Rights Council as countries that retaliate against their own citizens for defending human rights. We should be similarly concerned about Russia's role at the United Nations and its willingness to exercise its veto power to protect Assad, Maduro, and other autocratic leaders. Spending time on the Council is not reform these bad actors but rather given them a larger mouthpiece to share their misguided view of what is considered a human right. There is no issue more controversial and divisive in the UN context than Israel. Each year, the UN takes up a disproportionate number of unbalanced resolutions that assign blame to Israel for perpetuating unrest in the Middle East. These resolutions do not include references to Hamas, a known terror or organization. Further, fellow UN member countries have resisted U.S. efforts to draw any attention to Hamas activities in any form. We look forward to our witnesses' statements on this complex issue and examining how the United Nations can play a more productive role in mediating and resolving conflicts in the Middle East and elsewhere. Finally, I feel it's necessary to again note why this subcommittee and this hearing are important. The United States remains the largest donor to the United Nations, paying 22% of the regular budget and 25% for peacekeeping operations. In 2017, the United States was assessed $3.5 billion by the UN and volunteered an additional $7 billion in funds. Given these enormous sums of funds, it is essential that we as members of Congress keep a watchful eye on how these funds are being used and ensure they're going toward issues that reflect our values and our priorities. All that being said, I would like to recognize my distinguished ranking member for his comments, Senator Merkley. Thank you very much, Chairman Young. It's a pleasure to be here with you today, working in a bipartisan fashion to look at the challenges and opportunities to advance U.S. interests and leadership in the United Nations. Thank you to our distinguished guests and for your willingness to testify on this important topic. The United Nations was stood up after the oppression, brutality, and destruction of World War II. In fact, the U.S. Constitution served as an inspiration for the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. The United States played an instrumental role in shaping that post-war order and leading the concert of nations to collaborate in defending liberty, human rights, and religious freedom to ensure that the horrors of the past did not reproduce themselves. In this era of great power competition, where countries like China and Russia attempt to rewrite the global rules of the road, the United States is needed more than ever to push back. It is with great concern that I have seen the United States retreat from global leadership in recent years, to our detriment and to the detriment of the world. Our withdrawal from the Human Rights Council and a repeat
repeated hesitance, even refusal to act meaningfully on human rights issues have created a void in the United Nations system that China and Russia and other like-minded countries have eagerly exploited. The challenges we are facing today on existential threats such as those posed by climate chaos to the threats to democracy and human rights in authoritarian states are global in nature and require a global response. In the battle of ideas, China's vision puts development ahead of human rights, seeks to curtail access to the United Nations to human rights activists who challenge China's human rights record or policies, and applies economic pressure on nations to support its interests. I look forward to hearing from our first panel on what we are doing to preserve and strengthen the post-World War II international order, and to our second panel on how we work within the United Nations to best advance our interests and values. This is the first oversight hearing on the United Nations in a couple years, and I very much appreciate the chairman scheduling this hearing to take a closer look. So with that, let's get going. Thanks. Well, thanks so much, Senator Merkley. Uh, we will now turn to our first witness, Mr. Moore. Mr. Jonathan Moore serves as Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for International Organizations at the State Department. He is career member uh, of the Senior Foreign Service with decades of diplomatic experience. Mr. Moore, your full statement will be included in the record without objection. So if you could please keep your remarks to no more than five minutes or so, uh, we would certainly appreciate it so that members of the committee can engage with you on their questions. Mr. Moore. Chairman Young, Ranking Member Merkley, thank you very much for the opportunity to appear before you today. Uh, as you said, Mr. Chairman, I'm here on behalf of the State Department's Bureau of International Organization Affairs. We are dedicated to ensuring that the views of the administration and the values of the American people are accurately reflected and respected in multilateral fora, including in United Nations resolutions, statements, reports, correspondence, and activities. In addition to our foreign affairs professionals, we're extremely fortunate to have energetic, expert, informed, and influential ambassadors and permanent representatives in New York, Geneva, Rome, Montreal, Vienna, and Nairobi, Thank you very much for including Ambassador Kip Tom in this hearing. Mr. Chairman, as the ranking member cited as well, the United States played the lead role in founding the United Nations nearly 75 years ago, and we continue to host the UN Security Council and General Assembly in New York. The UN and other international organizations have key responsibilities on the global stage, and American leadership is crucial. The challenges we face are real, active conflicts, humanitarian crises, terrorism, threats to global health, the opportunities are also real. From protecting intellectual property to improving aviation safety, reinforcing human rights, and helping people in need. The administration has repeatedly demonstrated its determination to promote American interests and prosperity in and through international organizations. As you noted, Mr. Chairman, the United States remains by far the largest financial contributor to the UN, well over $9 billion last year, the vast majority of which supports humanitarian response efforts. UN peacekeeping operations are among the most effective mechanisms to address global challenges to international peace and security and remain an essential tool in protecting the most vulnerable populations. Across the multilateral system, the administration's commitment to reform is unwavering. Much more can and must be done to cut waste and overlap improve hiring practices, including for American citizens, and embrace transparency. 
eliminating sexual exploitation and abuse is another critical aspect of reform, both in peacekeeping operations and throughout UN agencies. Reform also extends to fixing parts of the multilateral system that have failed to keep pace with global trends. At the Universal Postal Union, grossly outdated pricing systems created market distortions that harmed US business. In October 2018, the president announced his intent to withdraw from the UPU unless corrective action was taken. Over the following year, we coordinated intensive diplomatic outreach and accomplished that goal with the result that US business will no longer face severe disadvantages related to the international shipping of small packages. This is just one example. The UN Human Rights Council, however, as cited, is a less positive example. Our efforts to spur reform of the Council were genuine and sustained, but it remains fundamentally broken. Nevertheless, with the strong support of Congress, the United States remains vigorously engaged in protecting human rights around the world. My colleague, Scott Busby, will speak to this. As a further example of our multilateral engagement, the administration is considering our return with the consent of Congress to the UN World Tourism Organization, recognizing that tourism is a significant economic driver in many areas of the United States. Mr. Chairman, as we approach the UN's 75th anniversary, we need the UN to remain relevant and serve our national interests, particularly as other centers of power, such as China, become increasingly assertive. Over its history, the UN has been responsible for some impressive successes and some spectacular failures. Your attention and that of Congress are invaluable in helping us serve the United States and keep the UN on track. Thank you again for the opportunity to discuss these and other important issues today. I look forward to my colleagues' testimony and to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Moore. Our next witness is Ambassador Kip Tom. Ambassador Tom serves the United States now at the United Nations Agencies for Food and Agriculture in Rome. He's a farmer with a lifetime of agricultural and development experience. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention his most important attribute. He happens to be a fellow Hoosier. Mr. Ambassador, please proceed. Chairman Young, Ranking Member Merkley, and to all members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to appear, appear here today. The U.S. mission to the United Nations agencies in Rome represents the United States' interest to the three U.N. principal organizations dedicated to food and agriculture, as well are three international organizations handling the rule of law, harmonization of commercial law, and cultural heritage preservation. As a successful seventh-generation farmer and businessman, I came into this job knowing what it takes to grow a business, create jobs, and empower youth. I also came into this position appreciating the strong leadership of this committee and the United States on global food security. After more than six months in Rome, I am pleased to report to you on the central leadership role that the United States takes at the United Nations as we advance our nation's interest. First, the World Food Program, or WFP, is in the good hands of the leadership of Executive Director David Beasley, the former governor of South Carolina. The scale of humanitarian need and forced displacement around the world is unprecedented, and WFP provided food, cash-based transfers, and commodity vouchers to over 86 million people in 2018. The United States remains a leader in generosity and assistance as we are likely to donate nearly $3 billion U.S. dollars through the WFP this year alone. With a staggering 821 million people globally who are undernourished, WFP demonstrates the value of the international community coming together, 
under strong U.S. leadership to deliver critical life-saving support to so many of the world's most vulnerable. Our continued leadership is saving lives and furthering the interest of our country each and every day. The Food and Agriculture Organization, or FAO, is equally critical to American interest, given its roles in Codex Alimentaris and setting the food standards that give the framework for American farmers and food companies to be the leading exporter of agricultural products globally. FAO must also provide the tools and policy support for agriculture practitioners and rural communities to transform in response to modern challenges. These tools should include biotechnology and other innovations so farmers can make sustainable choices. If FAO works the, world, the way it should by enhancing people's livelihoods and economic potential in all communities, we can advance key American objectives, including by addressing some of the root causes of conflict and economic migration. Simply put, if we don't get the FAO right, we can never put enough money into the World Food Program. However, there are challenges at FAO. Like other UN agencies, FAO needs to address issues such as opaque hiring practices, waste and overlap, and concerns about misconduct. FAO, like UN agencies, has just begun to undertake specific commitments to fight sexual exploitation and abuse by humanitarian, of humanitarian workers operating under its auspices. FAO is under new leadership with former Chinese Vice Minister of Agriculture, Dr. Qiu Dongzhu, taking office in August of this year. As Dr. Qiu himself has said, we can and must hold FAO's leadership to account in ensuring that FAO is an organization that meets the interest of all member states and directly addresses the significant challenges facing rural communities today. Dr. Q has promised to improve FAO's models by giving farmers expanded access to all tools and knowledge to help them feed themselves and grow their economies. He also recognizes that the world is changing and his team needs to increase partnerships with the private sector to ensure agriculture and rural communities are economically sustainable. We will both hold FAO and Dr. Chu to these promises. With the leadership change, the strong U.S. voice at the FAO is more critical than ever. We provide more than 100 million in assessed contributions annually and almost an equal amount in voluntary funding to support critical work such as addressing animal and plant health globally and responding to agricultural crises. But we are also working to ensure that FAO is held accountable and is transparent in decision making and crafting the programs that truly impact the global community. I am proud of our strong team at USUN Rome mission as they work daily to ensure American citizens are equitable, represented amongst the FAO employees, including at the senior level. Our scientists and agriculture exports, for instance, are best in class. We need the critical thinking, skills, and evidence-based decision-making they bring to the table for discussions about agriculture policies and tools. We also seek to ensure a fair playing field for the American agriculture interest through negotiations and policies on agriculture and standards. Today, I'm proud to uphold the work we do in Rome as a clear example demonstrating that the United States remains a central leader at the United Nations and in the multilateral sphere. We need to increase our presence to further Americans' interests globally. As a business leader, I've always believed that there is nothing more important to a leader's success than the ability to unify those with different backgrounds and interests behind a common purpose. We see this daily at the UN agencies of Rome, 
And with your support, we will continue our work to ensure American leadership in addressing food insecurity and the rule of law around the world. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. And thank you, Mr. Ambassador. Our third witness, Mr. Scott Busby, serves as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor at the Department of State. He served his nation in a series of roles for over 25 years. Mr. Busby, you may now proceed. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, uh, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Merkley, thank you for this opportunity to testify on how the U.S. is promoting human rights in multilateral fora and organizations. We are committed to working closely with you on this issue. The United States continues to work through a variety of multilateral and multi-stakeholder venues and mechanisms to educate, persuade, and fight for human rights. That said, all of these tools have challenges, ranging from simple disagreement among UN member states to actions by malicious governments to thwart human rights. At the United Nations, the US interacts with myriad UN bodies, programs, special mandate holders, and agencies that address human rights and democracy. From work on counterterrorism efforts to development, the US insists that human rights, good governance, and respect for the rule of law are integral to achieving the peace, prosperity, and security to which these entities and the U.S. are committed. Thus, for instance, at the U.N. Third Committee, the body charged with taking up human rights issues within the General Assembly, the U.S. recently led or supported a variety of resolutions on troubling country situations, including Iran, North Korea, Burma, Syria, and Russia, Russian-occupied Crimea as well as important thematic issues like a US-sponsored resolution on elections and democratization. We also seek to highlight human rights by organizing or joining events or statements in UN fora on countries or issues of concern. For example, during this year's UN General Assembly High Level Week, the US, along with several other countries, sponsored a widely publicized event on the horrible abuses occurring in the Xinjiang region of China. Subsequently, we joined 22 other countries to deliver a strong statement of concern at the Third Committee about the abuses taking place there. At the Security Council, we have also sought to elevate attention to human rights by, among other things, sponsoring discussions on human rights in countries like North Korea and Syria and supporting the inclusion of human rights and justice-focused mandates in peacekeeping missions where appropriate. We also support the UN Secretary General's efforts to end impunity among UN peacekeeping forces, including by implementing the UN's zero tolerance policy on sexual exploitation and abuse, and ensuring that peacekeepers are not drawn from security forces responsible for human rights abuses. Consistent with the recently released US Women Peace and Security Strategy, we are also steadfast advocates for increasing the meaningful participation of women in peacekeeping operations and at all levels of negotiation and dispute resolution. We also raise and act on concerns about UN bodies that do not live up to the human rights ideals of the United Nations. For example, we withdrew as a member of the Human Rights Council out of concern about the process for electing its members and its biased, unfair, and unacceptable singling out of Israel. Just last month, for instance, UN member states inexplicably elected Venezuela over Costa Rica to the Council. While we chose to leave the Council for these reasons, we will continue our reform efforts so that the Council might realize its potential. 
While we are no longer members of the Council, the U.S. does participate in the Universal Periodic Review process through which every member state of the UN undergoes an evaluation of its human rights record. We have also supported certain country and thematic mandates and mechanisms created by the HRC that genuinely advance human rights, including, for instance, country mandates on Iran, North Korea, Cambodia, Eritrea, Burundi, Syria, South Sudan, Venezuela, and Myanmar, as well as thematic mandates on freedom of expression, freedom of association and peaceful assembly, and freedom of religion. We also regularly engage with the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights and her office and support its activities in a number of countries and on a range of issues. Moreover, we continue to strongly support the International Labor Organization, which serves as a key US partner for combating exploitative child labor and human trafficking, promoting worker rights, and improving working conditions. In addition to our work at the UN, we continue to actively promote human rights and democracy in regional organizations and other multilateral and multi-stakeholder initiatives. For instance, for more than four decades, the United States has been the foremost champion of human rights within the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Among other things, we support OSCE missions in Ukraine, the Balkans, and Central Asia that work with host governments and civil society to monitor and advance human rights, the rule of law, good governance, and rights-respecting approaches to security. Closer to home, the department also works with the Organization of American States and the Inter-American Human Rights System to promote and defend the democratic principles in the Inter-American Democratic Charter. For instance, in June at the OAS General Assembly, we led efforts to adopt new texts paving the way for coordinated action to hold the former Maduro regime accountable for its ongoing violations of human rights and democratic principles. We also contribute similarly to the African Africa Union and its organs to build their capacity to promote human rights. In recent years, we have also strongly supported the establishment of new multi-stakeholder processes that bring together like-minded governments and other key players, such as business and civil society, to work on specific human rights problems. We have played a leading role in developing and sustaining a number of such initiatives, which are described in my written testimony. Promoting human rights and democracy in international fora is a lengthy, iterative, and often slow process. Since the end of the Cold War, we have made progress, but there has been backsliding as well as significant pushback. China, as both of you mentioned, seeks to weaken human rights action in international fora with flowery resolutions that use benign phrases like mutually shared beneficial cooperation or win-win outcomes. Russia pushes resolutions that try to elevate undefined traditional values over rights in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and many try to ensure that independent NGOs have no voice at the UN. Despite these efforts, we continue to believe that the UN and other international fora are crucial arenas in which to advance human rights, and we will continue to fight there for the unalienable rights and fundamental freedoms in America's founding documents and the Universal Declaration. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Mr. Busby. Uh, I appreciate each of you gentlemen for your testimonies and um, we will be adjourning and then uh, going to vote as I said earlier and then uh, back as soon as possible. So um, in, in just minutes, I know Senator Merkley and I will return. We're eager to hear uh, your answers to all of our questions.
The subcommittee reconvenes. I, I thank everyone for their patience, uh, including the, the tens of, of viewers we have on C-SPAN 2. Um, so, <laughs> I was going to say that would be a that's right. peak. That's right. That's right. My, my apologies to Hoosier Brian Lamb. So, um, listen, uh, we, will, we will run with questions for about 30 minutes because I, uh, I'm very eager uh, to dive into those. I, uh, I'm actually going to take the chairman's prerogative here if, if the ranking member is, is, is ready and defer to him, uh, allow him to uh, begin questions. We'll, we'll do seven-minute rounds uh, until we get to about uh, the 30-minute uh, mark, and then we'll bring on the next panel. Oh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. I'm, I'm happy to, to jump in. I want to start first on the human rights front uh, and uh, appreciate your, your testimony, Mr. Busby. Uh, the, but I'm concerned. I'm, I'm concerned that I didn't hear the names of Russia in your presentation. I didn't hear the names of the Philippines. I didn't hear Saudi Arabia. I didn't hear North Korea. And it seems to me, as we get feedback from across the world, that the inconsistent advocacy for, for human rights and the U.S. routinely dissing its allies while promoting dictatorships from the Oval Office is really damaging our international credibility. I know it's your job to say otherwise, but I wanted to raise the, the concern and just hear what you have to say. Thank you for the question, Senator. I did, in fact, mention Russia and North Korea in my testimony. Russia, in particular, has uh, undertaken several resolutions in the Human Rights Council, one on traditional values, which we have consistently opposed. And on North Korea, we recently uh, agreed uh, with the consensus on a resolution at the Third Committee in New York uh, and continue to work closely with the Special Rapporteur on North Korea, who's cataloging abuses there. We have not shied away from uh, calling out human rights abuses uh, uh, in places like Saudi Arabia and Philippines uh, and other places in Saudi Arabia. Uh, we did uh, apply uh, global Magnitsky sanctions against, I think, 16 of the individuals uh, implicated in the, in the death of Jamal Khashoggi. And in the Philippines, uh, we also have uh, called attention to uh, the unjust killings of many people in conjunction with the, the drug war there. So we are uh, calling out other countries. We do continue to publish our annual human rights reports, which do cover every country in the world, and we don't pull any punches in those reports. Okay. I know, I know you could go on at length about all the, the effects and so forth, but uh, it doesn't look that way to the rest of the world. Uh, and on Saudi Arabia... Don't you think it's something fundamentally wrong with us uh, attacking the 16 who are following orders from the crown prince while f ignoring the, the crown prince and promoting him as, a, as a, a leader we can work with in the world? And I must say, you did mention Burma in your remarks, uh, but the President of the United States has never said a single word about Burma, not a single word. And he didn't know what the Rohingya were when he had a, a Rohingya in his office. He said, I think, uh, where's that or what's that? Uh, and um, it's very clear that when you have the worst genocide on the planet back two years ago, that not having the President of the United States take a stand on it sends a message, even when all of you in the State Department are working very hard. So I just wanted to express that concern. I want to turn to the role of China uh, in the United Nations. And 
specifically its increasingly assertive use of the United uh, Nations, uh, various agencies. My colleague pointed out that they now head a number of, of agencies. They, they've been quite assertive in the Human Rights Council in tabling resolutions, uh, which is very concerning. They've used their influence in the General Assembly to neuter resolutions on peacekeeping mandates and funding related to human rights. Uh, share a little bit with us about the strategy of how we address the growing role of China in the United Nations. Senator, thank you very much for that question. Uh, it is a very comprehensive problem and it's being dealt with in a very comprehensive way. We are working with coalitions at many levels and in many regions to push back on China's efforts to erode or co-opt the norms of the UN system. And we are strengthening those coalitions in particular with like-minded states. We are seeing China seeking the leadership of UN institutions, particularly those which are responsible for setting rules and standards. Uh, we see in many cases China seeking exactly those positions to subvert the standards and the rules of the UN system for its own national purposes. This is something which is recognized by other countries and other partners in the UN. We are combating this again through building coalitions, through bilateral and multilateral diplomacy, to seeking to make sure that key UN institutions have the strongest possible leaders, persons who are expert and who have the goals and values of the UN and all of its member states, not just China, in mind. It's a very comprehensive effort. Okay, well let's take an individual example. Uh, the International Telecommunications Union is under the leadership of Chinese official, which some argue gives China a platform to push its concept of a digital silk road. Is there a risk that the ITU can be used to push other countries to adopt uh, Chinese models of surveillance or other key issues related to communications? Senator, thank you for raising the ITU. It is one of those organizations that is absolutely at the top of our list of concerns. Uh, our mission to the UN in Geneva works directly every day to focus on the work of ITU. We have directly criticized the head of the ITU for having engaged in a memorandum of understanding with Huawei, the Chinese company, on the subject of 5G. We are very concerned that the leadership at all levels of ITU, again, reflect international standards and ITU should not be used by anyone, not its head and not by external actors, for the interests of a specific country. Thank you. I'll pass it back. Mr. Romney. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to each of the participants today for your testimony. Um, there are some people in, uh, uh, in my party, my wing of the, of the world, if you will, that are very wary of international uh, institutions of any kind, uh, particularly the UN. I got a lot of questions when I was campaigning about uh, support for the UN. They, they feel a, a degree of skepticism about what role these institutions have. And I think there's a, a fear that international institutions will in some way impede on American sovereignty, our, our right to uh, set our own course and do what's in the best interest of America. Uh, but at the same time, these international institutions uh, are shaping uh, international standards. And those standards affect everything from agriculture to communications, electronics, and so forth. And so uh, if you want to have America participate in, uh, in the global economy, uh, it would strike me as important for us to participate in international institutions. I would also note that 
that uh, if we want to uh, see, uh, I'll call them malign players, having less influence in international institutions, the only way that I know how to effectively do that is by having us play a greater role. Uh, and, uh, and when we pull back from participating in international uh, organizations, uh, then, then obviously someone else is going to step in. It'll be someone who considers himself the, the, uh, the heir apparent to become the superpower of the, uh, of the world. Um, so let me, let me ask each, each of you, uh, first of all, uh, Mr. Tom, uh, uh, with regards to Chinese leadership in the uh, food and agriculture organization, uh, what does that mean? What, what kind of things can they do? Is it, is it just a, uh, uh, a nice title to have? Or is there actual uh, impact that might have that would affect America's farmers, America's growers, America's uh, packagers, and so forth? Senator, thank you for that question. Uh, over the past six months since arrival into Rome, I can assure you I've spent significant time at the World Food Program where we provide aid around the world. And the role of FAO is to create resilience and capacity. And I can share with you in my many mission trips to South Sudan, Rwanda, Zimbabwe, and in conversations at the WFP, I can share with you that it continues to be a problem across the Sahel, from, from the East Coast to the West Coast of Africa, where we see people giving up hope. They migrate, and when they migrate, tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands, go into IDP camps, some who have been there for four generations. Some give up from hope from that and join extremist groups that are moving across Africa. We see people involved in human trafficking, guns movement, and illicit drugs. All this is because we are not holding our line in the continent of Africa to make sure we can have reliable food systems to feed people that want to stay home. We will work hard at the FAO to make sure that the standard setting at Codex Alimentaris stands for American values and has a high standard to make sure that our nations and the global food supply remain safe. At the same time, we'll keep a watchful eye, as we would on any nation that leads the Food and Agriculture Organization, regardless whether it's China or whoever. We would be held to those same standards. So we've got a lot of work to do. Thank you. And uh, that certainly has a wonderful salutary uh, impact on other nations and the, and the poor uh, and, and those that are destitute around the world. Does it also have impact on us and our national interests? It has a significant impact on our peace and security and our national standards to make sure that the United States remains safe. If we continue to see these migrations and these people joining Boko Haram, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, we're not living in a safe world any longer. And if the population of the continent of Africa doubles in the next 32 years, the problem exponentially grows. We have to play a role to making sure the world is food secure. Our own national security and peace counts on that. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Moore, uh, why is China becoming so actively involved in some of these international organizations? What, what are their objectives? What are, they, what are they doing this for? Senator, uh, we are seeing China taking on an increasingly large role. For many years, China, despite having a permanent seat in the Security Council, together with us and three other countries, uh, took rather a passive role. Uh, hid behind the G77 and other blocs. Uh, over the past few years, China is taking an aggressive role, uh, not looking at it from a Cold War perspective, what does Washington have, what does Moscow have, but rather seeking control of those specific UN institutions that do set rules and standards. Uh, 
They are engaging in this in a very direct and extremely aggressive way to ensure that they get the votes that they want, to ensure that they have the influence they want throughout the world, opportunities for their companies, who of course in nearly every instance are state-owned, and that they have control of all of the world's regions and sympathy for policies, including uh, the so-called Belt and Road Initiative and other things of which you are familiar. It is a um, concerning and comprehensive approach. It has forced all of us to remind ourselves what the true goals and values of the UN are and why some of those institutions exist. Uh, and at the same time, it's also led us to reevaluate some elements of the UN system which may not be as relevant, may not serve the interests of the American people. Those parts of the UN where uh, the administration has made a principal decision to leave them, for example, UNESCO, which previous administrations have stepped away from, which Israel has also stepped away from because of inherent anti-Semitism, or the Human Rights Council, which we've discussed earlier, which we see, as I mentioned in my testimony, is fundamentally broken. We need to focus our energies on those parts of the UN system where, again, the rules and standards are set. As we heard it for ITU, uh, the World Intellectual Property Organization, also in Geneva, is extremely important. And there are other parts of the UN system I'd be very happy to brief you or your staff in a separate setting in greater detail. Thank you. I, I, uh, Mr. Busby, uh, uh, I'm going to just end with a question here, and now, uh, we don't have time <laughs> to have you necessarily uh, respond to it, but it would probably be something all of you would respond to, but that is that China has been uh, extremely successful in, uh, in getting itself uh, installed in places of significance where they can set standards and can influence the world. Um, uh, has that happened because we're, we are ineffective? Has uh, that happened because we haven't tried? Uh, why have they been able to be so successful and we have not? Uh, is it lack of effort on our part, this lack of prioritization, or is it that we just don't know how to do it? Mr. Busby, feel free to uh, respond. Yeah, to answer that easy question. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Senator, for the attention to China. In uh, the human rights space, China is being equally aggressive. Uh, they have yet to seize any of the senior positions relating to human rights, but they are trying to change the nature of the discourse on human rights from one focused on the individual and the rights that accrue to the individual to a discourse focused on governments, on the state. Uh, so China is saying, before we address the rights of the individual, uh, we should require that the state concerned agree to that uh, discussion, and that's uh, deeply uh, troubling to us. Uh, China exercises a lot of influence because, as Jonathan mentioned, uh, they have a strategy through the Belt and Road Initiative to sort of buy off uh, the votes of uh, other governments, uh, and that, I think, has been extremely successful. It's a bit harder for us to unilaterally do what they have done, um, but we are working to, to fight back uh, by coming up with our own strategies for demonstrating to countries that uh, the U.S. approach is better by developing programs and projects to help these countries uh, and to show why it is that uh, China's approach is simply not uh, a healthy or long-term productive approach. Thank you. Mr. Moore, um, I note that uh, 
you know, we, we, we've each of you indicated in various ways that China's ramping up its engagement in uh, the United Nations and affiliated agencies. Um, Chinese nationals, uh, there, it seems like there's been a concerted effort uh, to lead more specialized agencies for a period of time. In fact, the last three uh, appointments prior to, um, prior to this Food and Agriculture Organization election, uh, if, if uh, my reading informs me correctly, occurred under the previous president's watch. Is that correct? I believe so, Mr. Chairman. Okay. And then China's used its veto to block a UN Security Council resolution 12 times, by my reading, since 1971. And all but three of those vetoes occurred since 2007 and served to prevent Security Council action against Burma, Syria, Venezuela, and Zimbabwe. So that's, that suggests to me, I, I would conclude just from that limited information, tell me if this inference is correct, that expansion of Chinese influence at the UN isn't a new phenomenon, uh, nor is it solely attributable to this administration. Mr. Chairman, uh, I would be pleased to take the question to give you a more detailed response, but from what I know in my present position, this is something which has been going on for several years, including prior to the beginning of the present administration. They are looking for a variety of opportunities to build influence, to take control, to build indebtedness, and it must be added, Mr. Chairman, China does not feel remotely constrained by some of the same tools and legislation that we fully respect in the United States, notably the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act or the standards of OECD by which U.S. businesses and U.S. government operate, uh, and those are formidable uh, obstacles to us combating some of the tactics that China chooses to engage in. Yes. Mr. Moore, uh, like Senator Romney indicated, I, I see great value in multilateral org organizations like the one we've created in the United Nations. And, and the reason I, I started with that question um, is, is, is to make sure that uh, this conversation steers very far from um, any sort of, of partisanship, recognizing that China has a strategy. They have a strategy in this area as they do seemingly in all areas. Uh, it's it's uh, part of their society. It's part of their economic model as well. Um, with respect to China's influence at the UN, what issues are of greatest concern to your bureau in terms of China's actions within the UN system? Mr. Chairman, we are particularly concerned exactly about those elements of the UN system which set rules and standards, the rules and standards which uh, apply to all of us in the world, the work that the ITU does, for example, to set radio frequencies. Uh, there are other UN agencies like the UN Office of Outer Space Affairs, which is quite small, based in Vienna, but still has huge responsibilities for any number of items in orbit around the Earth any given day. Uh, we need to make sure that throughout all of those elements of the UN system, that we are vigilant to make sure that those institutions do not fall solely into Chinese hands, that everyone in the UN system, including in the UN Secretariat, recognizes, again, as we face nearly 75 years of the UN, the principles and standards by which the very organization was founded. So, Mr. Moore, briefly, you know, Secretary Guterres uh, called for an inclusive, sustainable, and durable development, speaking at China's Belt and Road Forum in April of this year. And in, in other media interactions, 
he has seemingly praised the Belt and Road Initiative, such that some have seen it as an unofficial endorsement of China's premier development effort. Now, um, I've, I've, I've had some hearings on the Belt and Road Initiative, and I recognize that there is some, some value that countries receive uh, with respect to the investment, that, but there's oftentimes predation uh, and deception involved as well. So is it appropriate for the United, United Nations as an organization to endorse China's project? Mr. Chairman, as you note, this is a topic which we have raised with Secretary General Guterres on many occasions. Uh, he did participate in uh, the summit in Beijing on the Belt and Road, uh, and we have stressed to him, uh, exactly as you have just said, the importance of ensuring that the United Nations does not engage in or directly support any single country's particular initiative, but rather looks out for the interests of all member states. Are there other countries sending similar messages uh, to uh, Mr. Guterres? And um, uh, are you speaking from the same songbook, as it were? I would say there are any number of member states who agree with us that uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, also referred to as One Belt, One Road, uh, is an obstacle and is a concern, and it is not the task of the United Nations to support it, to spread word about it, or certainly uh, to build the foundations of any activity on the basis of it. Thank you. Ambassador Tom, uh, you're our representative in Rome, uh, where the Food and Agriculture Organization, or FAO, is based. You spoke earlier to the importance of this organization and its future. It's led by the recently elected Chinese national, Chu Dongyu. There were a number of media reports about alleged Chinese manipulation and strong-arm tactics as part of that election. What did you and your counterpart, counterparts witness at the UN mission in Rome and the events surrounding that election? Our observations were that uh, the Chinese had been focused on this role for a long time, maybe eight or 10 years, as all these UN organizations. Uh, they had a very strong presence leading up to that vote. Uh, there was no means to try to change the outcome of that vote in the weeks leading up to, or even the, probably the year or two leading up to it at that point in time. They wanted it. They got it. In the months since the new director general has uh, taken the reins, have you seen anything in his leadership role that raises concerns for you or makes you question his support for the United Nations? Yes, sir. Thank you for that question. We play, stay very close to the FAO organization. I stay very close to the Director General. We are working with the Director General to make sure that we get as many AMSITs employed at the FAO to make sure we can help support and have impact. But we will hold him accountable like we would any other nation in that role and that position. We will keep a watchful eye on to make sure that we drive outcomes. As I said, David Beasley at the World Food Program can never raise enough money if we don't get the FAO right, and it's been broken for many decades. So, Ambassador Tom, I, I'm going to have to follow up. I, I asked you if you had seen anything in his leadership uh, that would raise concerns. Not or, at this time. Okay. All right. You were just expressing your vigilance and, and uh, professionalism, which I appreciate. According to the latest figures, Mr. Ambassador, the United States contributed $2.5 billion to the World Food Program in 2017. You indicated that if we don't get the FAO right, we can never put enough money into the World Food Program. So with that in mind, 
Um, given the significant amount of money uh, that's funding the World Food Program, what is your assessment of the value that the U.S. has received from that contribution? Quite candidly, uh, in the field, you are seeing returns on investment in Rome, Italy. Maybe not so much. They've been working on policy that uh, is very skewed. It's uh, idealistic, driven by a number of member states and NGOs running across Africa, thinking the food systems that they support, which are food systems that my grandfather put to the side 50, 60 years ago. We won't feed this nation unless we bring some of the modern innovations in biotech to the place where farmers across the continent of Africa can use. So with an eye towards UN reform and uh, accountability to U.S. taxpayers uh, and other member uh, countries, what recommendations might you have uh, provided to the World Food Program and other agencies um, um, to, to improve um, what you've seen thus far? Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, Senator, for that question. I have worked tirelessly with uh, Director Beasley, and we work together. He, he is very connected to a n number of presidents and leaders around the world. And it's, it's disheartening when we go places and we see countries that have the resources, the people could feed themselves, yet policy blocked by certain member nations has not allowed them to bring in some of the modern innovations that American farmers have at their access. They are available. They will make a difference, and we need to stop denying them the access because nothing good comes of it except for migration, human trafficking, and people involved in extremism. It's our own national security. It's a risk. So I encourage Director Beasley to weave that into his conversation with presidents and leaders around the world that they need to have a policy framework to allow these modern innovations to come to their country. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. And lastly, Mr. Busby, one question. Uh, we held a hearing, myself and, and Ranking Member Merkley, uh, some time ago about the Human Rights Council. At the time, uh, the United States had not withdrawn from the entity. Uh, there was, uh, I think, uh, among the expert witnesses, uh, I believe there was uniform belief that uh, for the time being, we should uncomfortably stay in, but at some point pull out. We did at some point uh, disengage. And so now my question for you is, has our withdrawal in your assessment from the Human Rights Council reduced our effectiveness in promoting uh, important values, human rights? Uh, thank you for the question, Senator. Um, as I tried to lay out in my testimony, despite our withdrawal from the Human Rights Council, we have sought to up our game on human rights in the wide array of fora and agencies that address the human rights issue, whether it is in New York at the Third Committee in the General Assembly, whether it's in the OSCE, the OAS, which has become a far more robust advocate for human rights. We have sought other ways of increasing U.S. attention to human rights and trying to move the needle on the ground. When it comes to the council itself, I should point out uh, that you know, we do remain engaged in the universal periodic review, uh, and we do that because every country in the world is reviewed there, including Israel uh, uh, and the United States. And we felt that that is a fair forum in which to make our concerns known. We also um, are continuing to engage with mechanisms of the Human Rights Council that we think are genuinely advancing human rights, whether it's special rapporteurs focused on particular countries uh, or mechanisms focused on particular issues. Thank you, Mr. Busby. 
Um, we are on schedule. In fact, we're uh, a couple of minutes ahead of schedule, uh, and I'm comfortable with that. So um, I want to thank uh, the members of our first panel for your testimonies and responses. For the information of members, the record will remain open until the close of business on Friday, including for members to submit questions for the record. Uh, thank you again, gentlemen. This hearing will now adjourn for a few minutes to allow preparations for our second panel. This hearing will now reconvene. We will now uh, be hearing testimony and responses from our second panel. First, we are joined by Mr. Brett Schaefer. Mr. Schaefer currently serves as the Jay Kingham Fellow in International Regulatory Affairs at the Heritage Foundation. Mr. Schaefer, your full statement will be included in the record without objection. So if you could please keep your remarks to no more than five minutes or so, we would appreciate it so that members of the committee can engage with you on their questions. You may proceed, sir. Chairman Young, Ranking Member Merkley, thank you for inviting me to testify today. My written testimony is too long to discuss fully, so I will only cover a few key points that I think are particularly relevant considering recent events. First, I want to point out that the U.S. is extraordinarily generous in funding international organizations. I raise this issue because some have criticized the U.S. for being, quote, a deadbeat or not honoring its obligations. To correct this mischaracterization, let me present a few key facts. The U.S. is currently a member of 200 international, or nearly 200 international, international nearly 200 international organizations and contributes over $12 billion to those organizations according to the most recent data. In most cases, the U.S. pays its, its assessment fully and on time and often provides voluntary contributions above its obligations. The vast majority of this U.S. funding goes to the United Nations, U.N. peacekeeping operations, and dozens of other entities affiliated with the organization, a total of over $10 billion a year. The U.S. has contributed on average nearly 19% of all U.N. system revenues since 2010. The second largest contributor has paid on average about 6%. China, which has garnered attention for its increased payments in recent years, contributed $1.4 billion to the U.N. system in 2018, fifth overall. The U.S. paid over seven times that amount. Second, even though the U.S. Uh, even taking U.S. withholding into account, the U.S. is by far the largest source of U.N. funding. Nevertheless, the U.S. does withhold funding at times. It does so because the U.S. government has a higher obligation to the U.S. taxpayer than it does to the United Nations. Our government has a responsibility to make sure that taxpayer dollars are not misused or put to purposes that harm U.S. interests. Often this requires withholding because other member states do not share our concerns, and pressure is necessary to spur changes. Why? In part because of the vastly different level of financial contributions among the member states. The UN assesses some, some countries less than $37,000 a year, while the U.S. is charged over $2.4 billion. For the majority of UN member states, the financial impact of wasteful spending or budgetary increases is so minuscule that they have very little incentive or reason to fulfill an oversight role, or to consider budgetary restraint. Unsurprisingly, in the vast majority of cases, U.S. withholding targets budgetary issues, mismanagement, and threats to the interests of the U.S. and our allies, such as confronting anti-Israel bias in the United Nations. American leadership can be decisive in improving the performance of international organizations, 
and focusing them on their original missions and purposes. But if the U.S. is to succeed, it must not hesitate to use the tools available to it. This includes financial withholding to bolster efforts to reform those organizations and to advance U.S. interests. Third, some believe that membership in international organizations automatically conveys benefits to the United States. This is not true. Membership in international organizations is not an end in itself. It is a means for securing the safety, prosperity, and opportunities of the American people. Not all international organizations meet this standard. For instance, the Clinton administration withdrew from the World Tourism Organization and the UN Industrial Development Organization because they provided poor value for money and were unable to define their purpose or function to any real specific value. Just as the Clinton administration deserves recognition for looking out for the interests of the American people at that time, so should the Trump administration for its recent decisions to withdraw from UNESCO and the International Coffee Organization. Every administration should conduct a regular evaluation of the costs and benefits of membership and, in coordination with Congress, use the results of that analysis to shift funding to best support U.S. interests. In short, the U.S. should participate in international organizations where membership benefits U.S. interests, adjust its support when the costs outweigh the benefits, and always seek to improve performance, efficiency, and accountability. Finally, I want to conclude my remarks by, address, by briefly addressing Chinese influence in the United Nations system. This is an example of how the United States must routinely reevaluate its policy and approach to international organizations. 20 years ago, China was not particularly active in the UN. Today, it is a major player. China is increasingly acting to protect itself and other repressive regimes, place its nationals in leadership positions, and modify UN resolutions and statements to reflect Chinese policies, values, and interests. This is concerning because China's policy priorities are in many areas antithetical to U.S. interests. As China becomes more economically and militarily powerful, its influence will grow. The U.S. can't reverse that trend, which is based on political and financial realities. However, the U.S. must take steps to counter Chinese influence through aggressive diplomacy, strategic action, and applying financial incentives to advance U.S. interests in the U.N. and other international organizations. Thank you very much for inviting me to testify today, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Schaefer. We're also joined by Mr. Peter Yeo. Mr. Yeo serves as president of the Better World Campaign. Mr. Yeo, I apologize if I have mispronounced your name. I think I have correctly pronounced it, and um, uh, you may proceed with your statement. You got, you got it right. All right. Thank you. Yes, uh, Chairman Young, uh, uh, Ranking Member Merkley, thank you for the opportunity uh, to explain how the United Nations furthers the values and the priorities of the United States. Over the past decade, I've been fortunate to see the life-saving work of the United Nations in more than two dozen countries around the world, many emerging from conflict and disaster. Uh, last uh, November, I traveled to Mali, where UN peacekeepers oppose no less than six terrorist organizations, um, offshoots of ISIS and Al-Qaeda, each uh, working, uh, fighting for territory and the, the overthrow of a democratically elected government in a strategic area for us. In Jordan, the United Nations Refugee Agency provides shelter for more than a half million Syrian refugees, while the UN Population Fund, working in the largest refugee camp, uh, has safely delivered more than 10,000 babies with zero maternal mortality. Uh, in Mexico, the UN Office of Drugs and Crime 
helps fight against opioids by tracking illicit crop production, working with the Mexican army to locate and destroy nearly 200,000 plots of poppies in 2017. In Yemen, one of the world's worst humanitarian disasters, the World Food Program feeds 12 million people per month, while UNICEF and the World Health Organization are responding to a massive cholera outbreak. Now, the member states of the UN finance these many operations through both assessed and voluntary contributions. While the US is the largest single financial contributor to the UN system, the current model is ultimately beneficial to the United States as it requires all UN member states, no matter how big or small, how rich or poor, to help shoulder the burden of the UN's regular and peacekeeping budgets. Some have suggested that moving to an entirely voluntary funding model would lead to more accountability and cost effectiveness. It won't. It's more likely to increase the amount of money spent by the US taxpayers as they are saddled with more expenses. Let me explain. Our country under Democratic and Republican administrations alike has a very broad definition of its foreign policy and national security interests. That's why we support peacekeepers in Mali and the UN's negotiators in Yemen. It's also why we support investigating human rights situation in North Korea and support programs that stop the flow of opioids into our country. All of these efforts are funded by assessed contributions to the UN. Few UN member states, including Russia and China, share this expansive view of national interests and would not shoulder the burden voluntarily. Now, as it stands though, we are one of the few member states not fully paying our assessed contributions for either the UN regular budget or peacekeeping. These shortfalls have contributed to what the Secretary General has deemed a financial crisis at the UN. Right now on peacekeeping alone, we are $776 million in arrears, a shortfall that the Senate Appropriations Committee stated last year damages US credibility and negatively impacts UN peacekeeping missions. At the same time that the US is underfunding operations, the stock of our rivals, particularly China, is rising at the UN, as has been dis discussed extensively. China is now the second largest financial contributor to UN peacekeeping. Its assessment rate having risen to 15% this year from just 3% 10 years ago. So in the UN context, increased Chinese support for the UN has boosted Chinese influence, as it would in any large organization, with dues-paying shareholders. With the, while the US has withdrawn from several key UN bodies, China has increased its leadership and now holds the top jobs in four of the UN's 15 specialized agencies. The Chinese government has also become increasingly assertive at promoting its vision of human rights, which of course values the state over the rights of the individual, in bodies like the Human Rights Council, in which we no longer participate. China is seeking to use the UN to promote the Belt and Road Initiative involving infrastructure investments in more than 60 countries. The right response to the rise of China in, in the UN is clear. First, the US should boost our level of involvement in UN agencies. Sadly, the State Department office that pushes US participation in international organizations was cut from five staff to zero. Second, we should engage in the UN system rather than withdraw from it when the US doesn't achieve all of its negotiating object objectives, a position backed by nearly 60% of Americans in polling last summer. Third, the US should pay its dues on time and in full. 
China has paid its regular and peacekeeping dues. The U.S., meanwhile, is set to be a billion dollars in arrears by next year unless Congress acts. As the State Department stated in a report to Congress this summer, such shortfalls resulted in diminished U.S. standing and the ability to pursue U.S. priorities. Simply put, the other 192 U.N. member states are more likely to vote with the U.S., support its candidates for key U.N. positions, and quietly push against Chinese initiatives in the, if the U.S. is seen as being fully engaged and supportive player. Um, this is the time to work cooperatively with the U.N. Uh, and other like-minded U.N. member states to focus on implementation of the Secretary General's ambitious reform agenda, which has been approved with active Trump administration support. And this also means American leadership to ensure that the UN remains as much in America's image as it did when we crafted the UN Charter with our allies nearly 75 years ago. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Yeo, for your instructive testimony. Finally, we're joined by Ms. Amy Lair. Ms. Lair serves as the Director of the Human Rights Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Ms. Lair, please proceed. Chairman Young, Ranking Member Merkley, thank you so much for holding a hearing on this important topic and for offering me an opportunity to speak today. Today I'll talk about how perceived U.S. disengagement at the U.N. at a moment of shifting geopolitics is severely damaging to U.S. influence and to human rights. I'll also offer some recommendations on how to reassert leadership. This is really the moment we need to up our game, not be stepping back. When the administration pulled out of the UN Human Rights Council and the US was left without an ambassador to the UN for nine months, uh, that led to a perception that this was a lack of confidence and interest in the UN system. So that had a signaling effect. This is a mistake. The UN isn't perfect, but it's still a really important forum for advancing democracy, human rights, and good governance. And the problem is that U.S. disengagement could not be more poorly timed. As others have discussed today, it's created a vacuum that other governments are using to advance their own interests that are very much counter to human rights and to long-term U.S. values. Faltering U.S. leadership has coincided particularly with the rise in Chinese engagement, which has shifted in its form in recent years. And that engagement is long-term strategic and aimed at really altering the rules of global governance. I'm focusing on China due to this increasing leadership in the UN, but obviously it's not the only government seeking to undermine human rights and other core values there. So I'm gonna over, overly simplify this, but China's advancing several key goals at the UN regarding human rights. So first, it's seeking to avoid scrutiny of its own abuses by changing the rules of the game. And second, it's seeking to weaken human rights and global governance by advancing new ideologies at the UN. So what does this look like in practice? I'll just give a few very quick examples. So UN human rights bodies are struggling to engage in any kind of oversight over what's happening in Xinjiang in terms of abuses against Muslim minorities there. Um, moreover, 22 countries drafted a letter that they submitted to the president of the Human Rights Council expressing concern about the human rights situation in Xinjiang. I was told that was given to the president of the council instead of read on the floor because no one country was willing to take on that role of really angering China. And in an unprecedented move, China convinced 37 countries to write a rebuttal. This is not normal. Praising China's treatment of its Muslim minorities. European governments I've spoken with have expressed the urgent need for the US to re-engage in the Human Rights Council, so this doesn't ever happen again. I do want to acknowledge the UN is, that the US is providing leadership on human rights and other fora within the UN. 
The UN has long provided for civil society organizations to have official consultative status at the UN with the idea that this enhances transparency and support for democracy and democratic values. Unfortunately, Chinese diplomats at the UN have intimidated NGOs and journalists on UN grounds and sought to have them banned. In fact, they've tried to have Tibetan Uyghur organizations stripped of their accreditation. I've described some actions by China to avoid criticism at the UN, but the US really needs to be focused on the long game. So that's playing out across multiple UN agencies and not just ones that have human rights in their titles. Uh, this occurs, for example, through the insertion of Chinese, Chinese ideology into UN documents and through senior level appointments, as has been discussed today. Uh, for example, a recent and successful China-sponsored resolution in the Human Rights Council called for mutually beneficial cooperation in human rights. This is a euphemism for state-requested capacity building to be the main means to promote human rights at the UN. The concept also supports a principle of complete non-interference and would help China and other abusive states reject UN oversight over human rights, like in Xinjiang, Tibet, Hong Kong, etc. The approach is getting the support of other autocratic states, and of course, China is increasingly making economic threats against other actors so they can benefit from their votes. Other UN bodies also matter for human rights. Um, the ITU has been discussed here today, but I think the you know, tech, technology and technology governance will have enormous implications for human rights, so staying engaged on these standard-setting bodies will be incredibly important, including from a human rights perspective. I do want to talk about a number of steps the US could take to ensure that the UN remains a forum supportive of human rights and democratic governance. So one, it is my view, based on the data, that the US should rejoin the Human Rights Council. The data shows that when the US was part of it, the body's membership included fewer of the worst human rights abusers, the number of resolutions targeting Israel dropped significantly, and the Human Rights Council passed more resolutions enabling oversight for abuses in places such as Syria. And many I've spoken to ascribe these positive developments to US diplomacy and leadership in that body. Our large mission just has the ability to do the legwork to get votes on crucial issues that others can't do. The US also needs a whole of UN strategy. The US should really signal that the UN matters. The strategy should be principles-based, focused on strengthening support for human rights, dem democratic norms, and rule of law across the UN. The strategy shouldn't be framed in terms of competition with particular countries. That won't get the support of the allies we need. We have to do it in coordination with like-minded countries. We're not gonna be able to do this alone and succeed. Congress should maintain or increase funding for UN agencies, and the administration should not try to cut it. And lastly, the US needs to lead by example. Every country in the world can improve its human rights practices. We need to engage with UN special rapporteurs that are exercising their oversight functions. Otherwise, we make it really easy for other countries to thwart oversight and then cite the US to justify what they're doing. Thank you so much, and I look forward to your questions. Well, and thank you, Ms. Lair. Uh, Mr. Merkley. Uh, thank you very much, all of you, for your testimony. Uh, Mr. Yo. So the U.S. thought 25% was a reasonable number to contribute, one quarter of the total cost. And the arrears you spoke of were because the U.N. continues to assess the U.S. almost 28%. I believe that's the main driver of those arrears. 25%, I think, to anyone back home in Oregon sound like, oh, we're contributing a quarter. Isn't, isn't that a fair amount? 
sounds reasonable to me, except that the U.S. voted in December to support a, an assessment rate for the U.S. of 27.8%. So these, these rates are negotiated every three years. We had an opportunity in December of last year to reduce the U.S. rate. And so in, uh, the Nikki Haley was engaged in active negotiations, and they got the rate down from roughly 28.2 to 27.8. But we negotiated this rate. We, had the, we also have the opportunity to veto any peacekeeping mission uh, that we view as too expensive or too costly. And so when we vote for these missions, we just voted for the mission in Central African Republic last week. So we vote for these missions. We agreed to this assessment rate. And so it seems to me that under those yeah, circumstances, that's, that's th we need to th pay. Th thank you. That's, no, that's a very interesting piece of information because I'm, I'm, I'm surprised to, to, uh, to, to hear that. Uh, that we voted for those those rates since we've had a long-standing cap at 25 percent, uh, we I think the United States feels, but I'm ask I'll ask you that often these peacekeeping missions do a pretty effective job in very difficult places in the world. Is that a fair way to put it? Um, absolutely, they're operating in countries in which the U.S. and our European allies in general do not wish to operate. So in the case of Central African Republic, the mission there has played a vital role in ensuring uh, the prevention of a genocide uh, between various religious and ethnic groups. Uh, and as we approach elections in Central African Republic next year, they would not happen without UN peacekeepers, as well as the sort of negotiations that occur to bring all the relevant parties together. So this is just a specific case where UN peacekeepers are advancing our interests. Do you think we're going to see uh, a lot more challenges as a result of uh, climate chaos and the impact on basic agriculture in the world? For example, in Syria, uh, extended drought resulted in people moving to the cities because they were starving. That created conflict, and it was kind of the roots of the Syrian war. Or I was just down in the Northern Triangle where extended drought has driven people out of peasant villages. They go to the cities where there's extraordinarily uh, gang-style extortion, and they flee north. Are we going to see a lot more uh, conflict driven by fundamental challenges for food in the world? Absolutely, we're already seeing it. I, was, I mentioned I was in Mali, and a lot of the conflict in uh, northern Mali, but also in Central African Republic, is due to change migration patterns and change herding practices as a result of climate change. So absolutely, there's a relationship between what's happening in terms of conflict between villagers that used to get along, groups that used to get along, but no longer do because of tighter resources caused by climate change. Are we still in Cyprus? Yes, we have a very small mission in Cyprus, and ultimately the resolution of the mission in Cyprus is dependent upon some sort of broader political settlement. It is not a costly mission. As we think about the drivers and, and the cost I was of going to say, Cyprus it seems like uh, that's not exactly one of the trouble spots in the world right now. It's been pretty stable for a while. Indeed. Uh, but um, So, Amy, I want to turn to you. Uh, I have heard that China has... Uh, proceeded to try to block certain activists from gaining access to the UN premises. Has that happened? Yeah, so there's one particular instance that's gotten news time recently. Um, there's a Uyghur organization called the World Uyghur Congress, and the head of it um, was not allowed to join the, there's a permanent forum for indigenous peoples every year, which if you are an indigenous peoples is a very important forum, and it's a very 
broad group. And the head of DESA allegedly um, blocked him from participating, although later my understanding is the US and Germany intervened and he was able to attend after all. The head of DESA, whether or not this is relevant, happens to be Chinese. I hope we're going to make absolutely sure that, that China cannot play that role. I'd also heard they had tried to block UN accreditation for certain activist groups. Is that true as well? That's my understanding as well. Why the hell would that be possible? Why would one nation be able to block act, various groups from, from getting accreditation to be part of the conversation? So I've actually been looking into that. I believe, and I can follow up and confirm this, that, um, so again, I believe that accreditation happens through DESA. Okay, well, I'd, I'd sure like to see us pay a lot of attention to that because it's another example of China's uh, ex uh, growing role. But the idea that on U.S. territory in New York, the Chinese are controlling who gains access to their premises uh, seems uh, just beyond wrong. I did want to mention that the strategies that have been revealed that China is using against the Uyghurs, it's basically, is it fair for me to say it's almost like slavery, massive monitoring, facial recognition, close control of communications, directed labor, um, really horrific situation if you say, here's freedom up here, and here's what's going on with the, uh, the, the Uyghurs and China's treatment of the Uyghurs. Well, it is actually like slavery in the sense that there's a significant problem with forced labor, and we actually just, my initiative just put out a report on that. So in addition to widespread surveillance and social control, there are people actually being forced to work in significant numbers. And significant, give me a number on that. We're talking a lot of people. I mean, we're talking, so maybe the best way, we, it's hard to get exact numbers there. In the area of Kashgar, which is a Uyghur-dominated area, um, an official said that they wanted, the numbers that they said they wanted to put to work of these, of these detainees would be like, I believe it was 20% of the Uyghur population there. So we're talking hundreds, I mean that would be hundred, that would be over 100,000 people and if you look at the whole area, it's hundreds of thousands of people. At a, there are sci-fi movies about extraordinary government control of people that are less scary than what China is doing there. So I hope we'll continue to, to highlight that. I am concerned that the conversation about trade with China and the interest, the economic conversation, has reduced our attention and amplification of this horrific situation. And I'll just invite any of you to speak to that who would like to. I would just say generally there's more we can do and should be doing and that we really need to be engaging with Europe and other allies on this. Um, it's not a problem we're gonna solve on our own and it's a problem that I think does concern everyone. One thing I've heard repeatedly going back to this topic of the UN is from Europeans that they're also concerned, they really feel like if the US is there pushing at the table, including in the Human Rights Council, they're gonna be able to do more to push like China is manipulating the Human Rights Council and mechanisms to whitewash its record on Xinjiang. And so that would be, again, talking about like why does it matter the US isn't present there? This is one of those reasons why having a lack of US leadership there actually matters. Now, I want to recognize the State Department has pulled together side events on Xinjiang around the General Assembly and has made efforts, so I don't want to discount those. Thank you. Mr. Schaefer, did you uh, have something you wanted to add to the topic? Uh, Senator Merkley, I can actually give you some clarification on the NGO issue, if you'd like. 
Um, the Heritage Foundation is an accredited NGO at the United Nations. Um, the process for accreditation goes through an NGO committee comprised of member states. That committee operates by consensus. China is usually a member of that committee. And so in that position, they frequently will challenge applications for NGOs to be accredited by the organization, questioning them, uh, asking further clarification, delaying, delaying the process. Uh, indefinitely, a lot of organizations give up at that point. Um, and so that is, that's the mechanism through which they block um, organizations from being accredited at the, or, at the UN. Also, um, there is a quadrennial review of organizations. Uh, China, other countries will ask questions that uh, delay the, uh, the approval of that quadrennial report. It's every four years. Uh, and sometimes that final approval can uh, be delayed all four years and then go into the next report. I uh, speak from experience. So, Mr. Schaefer, thank you for uh, clarifying that. What can we do? Very little. That? The organization d defines its own rules. A change in the rules will require the member states to, uh, to, to adopt those changes. Uh, the United States alone can't force it. Um, and um, as with many different issues at the, or at the UN, the member states are not friendly to NGOs, they're not friendly to transparency, and they're not interested in accountability or being challenged. And so they use their position as member states to block um, those that they think might um, put them in awkward positions. And that is not, I mean, you talk about um, China being influential. Part of China's influence is that a lot of member states share their perspective on these issues. And that's the key part of the problem. Uh, Ms. Lair mentioned that uh, without the United States in Geneva, that the member states were unwilling to uh, put a question directly, or I guess an application, or a, a, uh, directly to the uh, president of the Human Rights Council. It was a statement on the floor where someone yeah. would have had to write, read the statement. And that's really the problem, isn't it? Why won't a single other member state step forward to assume that responsibility? Must the United States be the only country to do that? Is the United States the only country capable of doing that? No, absolutely not. Thank you. I think we may have stumbled upon an answer, actually. Uh, and, and perhaps Ms. Ms. Lair gave us a window into it. I, I, I thought your recommendations were thoughtful, Ms. Lair. Um, but um, the one you most recently listed just moments ago was uh, deeper engagement with Europe. I would expand that to include our G7, trading partners and, and allies. Maybe we go to the G20 if we want to include uh, a more diverse array of countries and take a multilateral economic approach to apply pressure to the Chinese and actually um, develop a, a, a teased out uh, what uh, the ranking member and I have, have uh, uh, branded as a global economic security strategy so that uh, we, we can bring China through the only thing they seem to understand, which is um, uh, growing their economy uh, or not growing their economy, bringing them into a position of, of better behavior. And uh, through that mechanism, I think we could apply pressure. It would be outside of the UN construct, but I bet their conduct within the UN would improve. Uh, I, I'd, be, I'd welcome the thoughts of, of any of the witnesses uh, uh, about that idea. Uh, Senator Merkley and I collaborated on that legislation. We've been joined by Senators uh, Coons and Rubio. 
I think that to the extent that the U.S. makes an effort to have systematic, high-level dialogue with our key allies on human rights issues and understand how we're going to collectively respond to the human rights challenges posed by countries such as China, uh, the U.N. is just one mechanism that we can work collectively on this. I think the other suggestion I'd make is we need to send our best diplomats to work in a multilateral context, and they need to be trained in multilateral diplomacy. And when multilateral diplomacy is a unique bird in terms of understanding how you assemble coalitions behind the scenes to tackle important issues like human rights. And so to, to the extent that we can actually incentivize the State Department to send our best diplomats to work in these settings and then train them well, it can have better outcomes as, uh, on human rights issues. Thank you. Ms. Laird, do we have the economic clout in the convening power to uh, improve China's behavior, not just in the UN, but uh, more generally? So first, I completely, completely agree that the UN is not the only body that we would want to engage with to improve China's track record. Um, I do think the economic piece of it is important, right? It's, it's a piece of the puzzle. I do, I think, and to your point, yes, we need to work with more than just Europe. We have other like-minded countries around the world, and we should be engaging with them consistently with a strategy. Um, just one other piece I would add to that is that the letter I mentioned that was signed by so many countries saying how wonderful China's treatment of its Muslim minorities was, was signed by a lot of Muslim countries. And I believe we don't have an envoy right now to the OIC, and that seems like a lost opportunity to at least try to not have that kind of positive language coming out of countries that you would think would be quite upset about what's going on. I think the economic leverage, I mean, if we don't have it working with our allies, I don't know who does. So got to start somewhere. Thank you. Mr. Schaefer. Uh, thank you, Senator. There's, uh, there's several different issues um, that you've raised here. One is um, raising the issue of multilateral negotiations to prominence within the State Department. In some of my uh, papers I've written, I actually suggested uh, creating an undersecretary for multilateral affairs to prominently position these issues. Currently, the responsibility for uh, international organizations and U.S. policy toward international organizations is spread throughout the U.S. government over at the Health and Human Services Department, over at the Department of Commerce, over at the Labor Department, State Department. All different organizations have a piece of this puzzle. Uh, sometimes in the interagency process, um, an assistant secretary doesn't have the clout necessary to carry today, and some of their negotiating partners are going to be at a higher level than they are. Um, the unfortunate reality is that the International Organizations um, Bureau inside the uh, State Department is somewhat of a redheaded stepchild inside the, uh, the Policy Bureau. Um, and so I think that elevating that department would um, elevate the prominence and the cohesion of U.S. policy formulation um, uh, across the U.S. government. And I think that's important because whether we like it or not, increasingly issues of importance to the United States are being addressed multilaterally rather than bilaterally. So that is one issue. Uh, second, uh, yes, the economic engagement with China is a critical piece to this puzzle. Uh, China does not respond um, uh, easily to moral suasion. I think that the, you need to be a little bit more um, direct in your confrontation with China to uh, get it to change its behavior. Uh, it's unfortunate that many countries that the United States agrees with 
um, off the record, whether they're in Europe or Latin America or Africa or in Asia, um, are reluctant to speak publicly or take stances firmly inside the international organizations on the record. That is something that needs to be fixed. Um, and even though uh, my fellow panelists may disagree with me, I think the U.S. withdrawal from the Human Rights Council has forced some of those countries to take stronger stands. For the first time, European countries uh, voted against uh, Agenda Item 7 in the Human Rights Council, which is the anti-Israel resolution or agenda item in the Human Rights Council, instead of just abstaining on those resolutions. Uh, that is something they hadn't done before, and it's something that is a marked change of behavior from their past practice. Thank you. Colleagues, fellow witnesses, feel free to disagree about the Human Rights Council. I think that the, we haven't uh, had enough disagreement to no. go around. Stir, um, stir the pot a little bit. I, I, I would just say that the work of the Human Rights Council has continued, and what's what's happened is you've seen important measures related to you know, Yemen and North Korea and Syria being adopted in the Human Rights Council, even though the U.S. is not a member of it. The challenge is the U.N. Human Rights Council remains the preeminent global body in which not only you know, countries in Europe but around the world look towards for standard setting and um, statements related to human rights. And we're not participating. So this is the preeminent point. We, Cuba, China, Venezuela, they all had seats on the council. Uh, Venezuela was a member in 2015, right. and, and the council invited Maduro to speak at a special assembly, and he got a standing O. There's no, there's absolutely no doubt about it that the, the, these membership rules for the UN Human Rights Council creates a situation where there are countries on our that, that don't share our values. That said, all this important work is still happening. We should be participating in this work in the Human Rights Council, advancing our interests as it relates to Venezuela and to Syria and to North Korea, as opposed to taking a walk and saying, well, we didn't get what everything we wanted, we're out. I think we need to stay engaged, try to get what we want, continue to push for reform because you're right. It doesn't make sense that human rights abusers are a member of the Human Rights Council. Let's fix it. Ms. Lehrer, I'll ask you quite provocatively uh, before I allow Mr. Schaefer an opportunity to uh, respond. Do we really want to re-enter the Human Rights Council? 62% of the Human Rights Council members uh, were not democracies, according to my most uh, recent reading. Do we want to be part of that club? So I actually looked at the data um, because I do think it's obviously a imperfect body, um, and I think the U.S. has legitimate concerns about um, standing agenda items on Israel, the membership, et cetera. So there's an organization called the Jacob Blaustein Institute that's actually sort of run the numbers on what happens when the U.S. is out of the, out of the council and when we're in. Um, it's an organization founded by the American Jewish Committee. And what they found was, for example, um, that country-specific resolutions that targeted Israel dropped from 50% of the re resolutions to 20% when the U.S. was in, right? So there was a significant reduction in that focus. It's, our membership appears to have at least made things meaningfully better. The quality of the countries that were able to get into the council was better. Not good, but better. Um, I think the other piece is, again, just looking... So their research focuses on our prior concerns about the council. I think if you look at... Also, the research being done on like, what is China doing in this council? And so these are new concerns. And what they're trying to do is change the nature of the human rights machinery at the UN. Right now, it's based on this idea that you don't get to just tell the UN if you're China, Saudi Arabia, Iran. We don't want you to talk about us. You can't have any access, right? 
there's this idea of oversight by other member states, this collective oversight around human rights, around, especially around gross abuses. China's trying to change that paradigm, and they are submitting, they just started submitting resolutions in the, in the Human Rights Council in 2017. This is new. And they're, sub, they're submitting multiple resolutions and amendments that, first of all, use terminology taken directly from Xi Jinping's speeches, like win-win cooperation and mutual respect. Right? It's a problem. <laughs> All right, Ms. Lair. Um, so not a bad answer, but uh, we've given Mr. Schaefer plenty of time for a wind-up and, and to respond. <laughs> so look, Mr. Schaefer, you, you heard the counter-arguments. I mean, is, is there really a viable alternative to uh, the Human Rights Council? Um, is there any other multilateral fora uh, that we could join to address these sorts of human rights issues? There are some regional ones, as mentioned by the uh, earlier panel, OAS. Um, there's also the uh, OSCE, um, I'm sorry, the Organization for American States and the Organization for Economic Cooperation Security in Europe. Um, but uh, there's one, other one, it's called the Third Committee of the UN. It has membership of all UN member states. They pass resolutions condemning uh, countries every single fall. Uh, there is no reason why that body could not have a reconvening every few months in the spring, in the summer, in the other times, or it could have a standing com uh, committee or a standing presence and, uh, and agenda to discuss human rights uh, problems. I wonder why that hasn't happened. Ambassador Haley went to great efforts to try and reform uh, uh, the Human Rights Council before uh, we left, and, and, and that met with no success, which see would seem to run against the grain of, of what the other witnesses were, were saying. Uh, not to, uh, not to disparage our fine friend in, uh, in uh, Central Europe, but having it be in the third committee would, be mo uh, would mean moving it out of Geneva. Okay. Uh, okay. And so uh, that's, that's obviously of concern to Switzerland. Yes. Um, they want to maintain as many UN presences there as they possibly can. But the, the advantage of having it in the third committee is that every member state is present. Not every member state is present in Geneva. Um, they're also, um, but they're, and every fall, the third committee of the General Assembly receives a report from the Human Rights Council and approves it. It reviews it and approves it. So it's already engaged in a lot of these discussions and a lot of these uh, these issues uh, before it. So there's no reason why that body couldn't assume the same responsibilities, hear the reports and hear and hear the testimony of the human rights experts, uh, have the High Commissioner for Human Rights uh, attend its sessions and and do its. Uh, uh, provide its, uh, their information as well. I mean, there's no reason why the Third Committee couldn't fulfill these responsibilities. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the Human Rights Council. Uh, uh, Ms. Lair mentioned that um, the percentage of resolutions on Israel, condemnatory resolutions on Israel, went down as a percentage. I want to just say that the number of them does not go away. What's happened is that the UN Human Rights Council has passed more resolutions on other countries. Every year they pass the same number of resolutions on Israel over and over and over again. Um, and that's good that other countries with human rights problems get resolutions passed uh, addressing their situations. But I think it's worth noting that there are a number of countries that don't get passed. China, Cuba, Russia, Saudi Arabia, other countries never have had a Human Rights Council resolution passed condemning their human rights practices, despite ample evidence of them. All right. Well, thank you, Mr. Schaefer. I, I know we could uh, continue with this for a long period of time. I, I, I welcome continued dialogue with our offices uh, on this really important matter. Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm going to turn it over to Mr. Merkley to ask a, a final pointed question on an issue that was brought up, and uh, then we will stay on schedule and, and wrap up. Mr. Merkley. 
So a few days ago, the, the New York Times published an article uh, derived from 403 pages of internal documents about from the, from the Chinese Communist Party about how they uh, treat the uh, Uyghurs and Kazakhs. And they noted that based on that, uh, in the, in the uh, Xinjiang area, a million ethnic Uyghurs, Kazakhs, and others have been herded into internment camps. And they go on to, to note the absolute ruthlessness of this. And of course, a lot of this is directed to groups that are Muslims in China and are seen as to uh, the rest of China, Chinese government is a threat. So I find it, I'm still kind of wrestling with what I heard about the Organization for Islamic Cooperation. It has 57 members, 47 members are Muslim majority. And how is it that these Muslim majority countries are saying that China has an exemplary human rights record? I don't get that. And you uh, mentioned, Ms. Lehrer, that uh, we don't have an envoy. Is that because one hasn't been nominated or we haven't confirmed the envoy? So both, I just mentioned both those things because maybe that's something we can follow up on. So I will be honest and say I'm not sure which reason it is. I just know that we don't have one and I'm happy to look into that and follow up with you. But yeah, I mean, I, it's, I am also concerned about how a number of Muslim countries could come out with a statement like that. And clearly, there's an opportunity for us to try to shift that conversation. I think it shows, I have to wrap up, because I'm, I'm on the clock and I'm getting kicked under the desk here. Uh, the, uh, uh, I, th I think it suggests a massive growing influence of China in the, ro in the, in the world. Uh, and uh, why, we, why it's good we hold, held this hearing, and thank you, Mr. Chairman, for doing so. I think we have to keep uh, pondering uh, the dynamics in, in this world in which I, I see um, uh, Chinese kind of ruthless strategy gaining ground, uh, and that we have a lot of work to do. Thank you. Well, thank you, Mr. Merkley, uh, for your friendship, your comity, and your brevity. Um, and thank you to all our witnesses today for their statements and for their willingness to engage in what has been, I believe, a constructive dialogue. I will again call members' attention to the fact that the record will remain open until the close of business on Friday, including for members to submit questions for the record. Thank you to the members of the subcommittee, especially uh, to the ranking member once again. Uh, and thank you all uh, to our witnesses. So this hearing is now adjourned.